I want to talk about an adaptive strategy process, which is a concept from the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy by the Boston Consulting Group. And an adaptive strategy comes in handy and is appropriate for businesses that are in an unpredictable environment and you can't really change your environment. So the classical approach, which is go big, drive value, drive down costs, be one of the top three, is appropriate for an industry in which there's little change and you can't really change things. So scale is really important. In adaptive environments, you know, things can change quickly and you need to, as a company, develop a bottom-up strategy for identifying the need to change and making incremental little experiments to see what works. But what's important with an adaptive strategy in doing those experiments is to rely on actual data rather than just gut feel. I mean, obviously gut feel is how you develop hypotheses to figure out which experiments to do in the first place, but you need some sort of data set to, to figure out what's working. And an example they used is a clothing brand called Zara, which the, in the clothing business, you know, normally what you're doing is you're coming up with a couple seasons worth of clothing per year. So maybe that's your fall, your spring, and, and maybe your summer season. And what you try and do is you try and, you know, anticipate consumer demand, make your clothes, ship them in, hope they sell. But the problem with that is what about the stuff that doesn't sell? Anytime you walk into a clothing store, you'll see, you know, clearance racks where stuff's marked down 50%. Well, that's obviously not their high flying items. That's kind of the crap left over that no one wanted to buy. And apparently in the retail industry, retail clothing, that's up to 50% of the clothing ends up on the sales rack. So Zara wanted to figure out a way to avoid having that happen. And what they did was they moved their supply chain closer to the US, in, you know, from China to, uh, to, to Mexico, and for in Europe over to Turkey, I believe. And that allowed them, while the manufacturing is more expensive there, that allowed them to get it done quicker and to market much faster. So they'd sit there in the season and be able to identify trends and move towards those. So, you know, they'd start the season with things they, they pretty much knew they were gonna work, but they weren't taking as many risks on items that may work because someone saw it in Vogue magazine you know, and, and, and stuff like that. They, they're able to identify trends kind of midstream and get them to market much quicker. And as a result, their, the amount of items that they had to throw on clearance went way down. And also they had a lot more, you know, inventory turns, which is, you know, essentially how many, time, how many times your inventory turns over each year. Well, the more your inventory turns over, obviously you're, you're, you're making the item, you're selling it, you're reinvesting those profits, making the item again, selling it. And the more you can do that, the more profitable you're gonna be per year because your fixed costs are gonna remain the same. And I think that's a really interesting way of you know working in an environment that is traditionally very unpredictable because who knows what fashion styles are gonna be next year. Now, there are some fashion brands that would move towards what 
Boston Consulting Group would consider a stable environment. So that's when it's unpredictable, yes, but you can also shape it. And the more branding power you have, the more you can shape your environment because that's basically what branding is, right? It's changing your environment to make people buy your stuff. Now, a brand like Zara can't really do that. A brand like, uh, and this is probably wrong and I'm showing my age, but The Gap, which has a gigantic marketing budget, you know, they, or Nike, well, they can, they can for, they can uh, push trends forward. When Nike does the new Chris Paul shoe or the new, um, uh, man, I'm showing my age because my kids buy it and it's, uh, oh man, uh, he was on the Nets, uh, Kyrie Irving, that, that when they do his shoe, well, they're going to Kyrie Irving and saying, we're paying you X to market this shoe and and you're gonna wear it this year and we're gonna sell it to kids with your name on it. Well, that's shaping your environment. Zara can't do that. It's They have much less of an ability to change their environment. Their environment is less malleable. So they have to rely on identifying trends, yes, doing little experiments, yes, to see what sells, and then quickly getting that into mass production and into their stores. So it's a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach Nike would use where they market first and then sell the shoes. Zara has to see what's working with their clothing and then have their supply chain streamlined in order to get those products out to market as fast as possible. A lot of tech businesses are gonna be really the same. The book mentions Google allowing some of their workers up to 20% free time to develop new products. And as you'll recall over the years, you know, Google has done a lot of different products that never panned out, like Google Glass, the eyewear. You know, I remember you'll see stuff that comes on the Google site and then it comes off. And they develop and jettison new products all the time. So do companies they own like YouTube. Well, you know, it's interesting because you'll read, you know, articles about some pundits saying, oh, this was a massive failure, blah, 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 blah. But you're, you're ignoring the fact that what Google is doing is using an adaptive strategy to a, to a quickly changing environment. And they're trying to introduce new things, a bottom-up approach from some of their mid-level executives trying new things. And then they're figuring out what works through data and jettisoning, jettison, jettisoning, jettisoning those things that don't work. You know, 3M would be another classic example of that. They always had a program where they allowed their their engineers a lot of autonomy to develop new products, and that's famously how Post-it notes were developed. And that's a changing environment where you have to constantly develop new products for your customers and you have to have a strategic approach within your firm to go ahead and identify those opportunities and push them down. So that's an adaptable strategy and when to use it. Again, it's when you're in a constantly changing environment, it's very unpredictable, but you can't really affect change on your circumstances. Your environment is not malleable. I wanted to discuss the Boston Consulting Group strategy palette. Now this comes from the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. And I think it's a really good way of thinking about the diverse needs of business in the context of strategy. You know, Boston Consulting Group, their kind of go-to strategy um, 
from the 70s is uh, and 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 before that um, the the experience curve is kind of like as you gain scale you can drive down price pass those along to the customer protect market share um, you know that's that's kind of a classic strategy that also falls in line with kind of Michael Porter's five forces. Um, you know, those are classic strategies, but they aren't right for every business. And what the strategy palette goes into from, again, the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, is that there's really four main strategies for a healthy business and then a renewal strategy for times where the business is in a harsh environment and needs a course correction. So the four strategies are the classical strategy, which I kind of just alluded to, the visionary, the adaptive, and the shaping. And those are all a quadrant that depends on two, two spectrums or two axes. And one of those axes is the malleability of a business, meaning how, how much can you change your business environment? And then how predictable is your business environment? So imagine this like an XY graph. Imagine the Y axis is the unpredictable nature of your business. And the X axis is the malleability or how much can you change your business? So at the bottom, left of the quadrant is businesses where they're totally predictable and you can't really change things. So that's where the classical strategy comes in. You know, lower your costs through economies of scale, pass that along to customers in, in exchange for more market share and grow that way. That's kind of the cash cow business that uh, Bruce Henderson of the Boston Consulting Group uh, constantly talks about. Um, and, that, and that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to be a market leader, you know, probably number one or number two in a market and maintain that market share through, through cost savings, part of which are passed along to your shareholders, but a lot of which are passed along to your customers. So what if, what if your market is unpredictable, but you can't really change things? So what about like a, a software consulting firm? Software changes all the time. It's totally unpredictable what direction it's going to go. If you're a software consultant, you, you can't predict at the beginning of 2021 what 2022, you know, what your consulting is going to look like. Well, it's an unpredictable environment and you can't really change that. So you need an adaptive strategy for unpredictable environments where you can't really, really change that. Um, and that's a, a strategy where you're going to have to come up with constant innovation in order to deal with the unpredictable nature of your of your particular business line. Okay, so moving along, let's go to the bottom right of this four strategy quadrant I've been talking about. Let's say your business is predictable, but you can change it. Well, that's where a visionary might come in. Let's let's look at Steve Jobs. This is a great example. So, let's let's look at the iPod as it as it initially came in. It's pretty predictable that people are going to listen to music. What's visionary is getting all that music in one place on one player that you can't play on another player. CDs, you know, you could buy a Sony, you could buy a, a Panasonic, you could buy whatever. 
your iPod, you're not buying any of those because it's all there. And then extend, extend that one step further to the iPhone. That's a visionary. It's a very predictable demand, pr predictable market, but you can change it. And that's where the visionary approach comes in. Well, what about the top right of the qu quadrant where it's an extremely changeable environment and it's extremely unpredictable? So that's where you're gonna look to shape your, you're gonna to look to a shaping strategy. So let's let's look at the retail clothing environment. You think at the beginning of 2021, you have any idea what 2022 is gonna look like? No, but you can change it a lot through marketing, through buying, through, through uh, buying appropriately. And that's kind of a retail clothing environment. It's extremely unpredictable, but you can change it a lot. And that's, you're gonna develop a shaping strategy. You're gonna wanna shape what you're gonna sell through your marketing approach. You're gonna wanna act quickly in order to adapt to new styles as they come up. And that's kind of your, your, your retail clothing, your shaping strategy. Well, the fifth kind of strategy that the BCG Color Boston Consulting Group color palette goes over is the, uh, the the renewal strategy, excuse me. So what if your business is just taking a nosedive and you're just kind of throwing up your hands to protect, protect yourself? You're in a renewal strategy. You're gonna cut costs significantly, focus on cash flow, and get yourself in a position where you can get back to one of these strategies and move from there. So that's the renewal strategy. It's a strategy in and of itself, but you can't stay in renewal forever. You can't cut costs forever to profitability. You can't manage cash flow forever to profitability. You'll eventually go out of business. So you do need to get back into one of those other four strategies. The classical strategy where it's predictable and you can't really change things. The visionary where it's predictable, but you can change things. The adaptive approach where it's an extremely unpredictable environment and you can't really change things. And then the, the, uh, the, the shaping environment where it's unpredictable and you can change things. So want to get from the renewal environment to one of those four as quickly as is feasible. So those are the five strategies under the Boston Consulting Group uh, strategy palette that are in the book, your strategy needs a strategy. I think it's a real cool way of thinking at things and you know, depends on where you are in your business, but that's a good way of, of looking at, at strategy from a general perspective. I wanna talk about the visionary approach to strategy from your strategy needs a strategy. I'm reading this book and really loving it. So, you know, the, the four different approaches depend on how, depend on how uh, changeable your environment is, as well as how unpredictable your environment is. So when your environment is both completely predictable and you can't really change it, that's when the classical approach to strategy makes sense. And that's just gain scale, reduce cost, grow market share. When your strategy is very unpredictable, but you can't really change things, that's when adaptive strategy makes sense. And I went into that. When your strategy is both, or when your situation is both unpredictable and you can change it, that's when the shaping approach comes in. But today we're gonna to talk about 
the innovation approach. So this is when your strategy or when your situation is both very predictable and but you can really change it. So that's where innovation makes sense. And so where have you heard this before? So innovation is generally associated with startups and uh, let's call it uh, disruptors. So you know your your iPhone, where you Steve Jobs combined music and a phone, which you know nowadays seems so blasé, but you know back then when he created that was you know no obviously no one ever thought about it, and that made the iPhone basically the standard by which phones are measured today. Uh, another one that the the book mentions would be Twenty Three and Me, which is an interesting one, uh, mapping the human genome, and you know. The book goes into, you know, the, and this is a constant innovator's dilemma, is, you know, now 23andMe is a, you know, an, an ancestry uh, company where, you know, it maps your, your, uh, your DNA and finds out kind of where you came from and stuff like that, and that's how it's promoted. But, you know, at first, you know, they were thinking it was going to be more of a healthcare-related company. So, you know, you start off with why, why is this innovation even necessary? And even going back to the iPhone, you know, why the hell would you want your phone and your music in one place? And, you know, now that is so apparent to us, right? You just take your phone everywhere, you listen to it when you're running on headphones, you know, you can make calls. And obviously the iPhone is a platform now for doing a lot of different things. But back then that, that wasn't, you know, taken for granted. So an innovator has to really change their be able to change their environment and that's what you know this disruption is all about e-commerce amazon is an obvious one you know you remember or i remember certainly in the you know mid 90s when the internet was first coming to prominence a lot of people saw the e-commerce trend but you know retailing on commerce you know amazon's the first one who really got it right there were a million not a million but there were a lot of companies you know back in the late 90s, whether it's pets.com or diapers.com, they were gonna sell certain things on the internet, but no one was really able to bring it to scale kind of prior to Amazon. Um, UPS is one that the book mentions that saw that e-commerce trend you know, coming on early and they partnered with eBay and were able to, uh, to gain a 60% market share as of the writing of this book, which is around 2012, in the e-commerce market. And, and obviously things change because I don't know that that's true today, and Amazon is actually one of their competitors in the in the e-market delivery space. Uh, Uber would be a great example. You know, predictable environment. How like how predictable were cabs when Uber first came onto the scene? Well, they completely changed that and disrupted you know the uh, the rideshare space and the the cab space by introducing rideshare. Uh, Bitcoin would be another one. You know, money is very predictable. Bitcoin is betting that, and they're not really a company, but they're betting that they can change how currency is, is delivered um, in order to prevent uh, governments from debasing their currency and, and making transactions a lot easier. It remains to be seen if, if in 20 years we'll sit there back and go, yeah, of course we use cryptocurrency. That's how everything is done. It's not apparent today that, that that's gonna be what, what happens, but we'll see what happens 20 years from now. So one thing to bear in mind is that the visionary environment is not the most common by any means for every single thing. You often hear that, you know, here's this new startup that's trying to disrupt this or disrupt that industry, disrupt insurance, disrupt banking, yada, yada, yada. Well, 
they don't always work out. And, and that is often because people don't want that change and the, the vision that the startup founder has isn't what the customer ends up wanting. So, you know, one of the risks is seeing a visionary environment in something where it doesn't exist. But, you know, that could just be that the founder isn't the right person to sell that. I mean, you know, who knows if Steve Jobs hadn't came along, would we still be, you know, have our cell phones that, that don't play music? I don't know, maybe. Um, so I, I think there's, there is definitely, it has to be something that the, the customer wants, but you've also got to be able to turn it into something the customer wants and, you know, make your, your offering something that customers actually value. So the next part of the, uh, let me get my notes. That's the problem with, problem with these things. Um, okay, so the other thing about a, 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 a visionary approach is, you know, you have to have an endpoint, but be flexible in how you get there. And the book says a lot of mistakes that companies make in a visionary approach is they try and plan for it like a classical environment. Um, you know, you try and do a strategic budget and forecast for the next year, and that just doesn't work because you have an end goal, but you've gotta be completely flexible in how you get there. I brought up 23andMe earlier. Well, you know, I don't know that it's, that, that, that the founder had an idea, she, she certainly didn't have the idea that it was gonna be, you know, a genetic mapping ancestry company. And I don't know that when that came along, but she had a real, she, she knew that genomics would be important and would come into use somehow, and that's how it ended up, you know, working out for her. But she eventually had an end game, the use of genomics as an everyday usable approach for your ordinary customers, but was very flexible in, you know, how, how she actually got there. So, you know, another standard of a visionary approach is, okay, what strategies do you need to play as, approach assuming you are in a, in a visionary environment. Well, number one is move fast. You've got to gain scale before all of your competitors jump into the market. Now, you know, competitors jumping into the market is not as a big of a deal as it might seem, you know, because a lot of competitors, well, they're in this space, but, you know, they don't necessarily see what you're doing as something that's actually going to work and they're skeptical and they're also you know large companies it takes them a while to make changes so you know this is where niche companies in a market niche companies in a market can really take advantage of the fact that larger competitors you know aren't going to necessarily adopt what they're doing very quickly but if it takes too long and your competitors do see it coming well they can you know jump into where this space and take advantage of that. On the other hand, what normally happens with visionary companies is larger companies, you know, if, if the vision seems to be working, we'll go ahead and buy them. And that's, you know, uh, they, they mentioned, you know, GE does, you know, like something like a hundred acquisitions a year, you know, Google, Amazon, they all do a ton of acquisitions. And that's what they're doing is taking advantage. Now that they're large companies and almost classical companies are, are taking advantage of, you know, other innovative companies to bring innovation into their own company. So important to move fast, but you can overestimate how fast your competitors will actually, the large competitors in the space will actually 
try and jump into what you're doing. Um, you want to set industry standards. So, you know, the iPhone, the app store is very innovative and they actually, I'm going to discuss that when we talk about a shaping approach, cause that's more of a, their strategy is more shaping, but they definitely set the standard for, you know, how, how mobile phone devices work with, you know, both talk, text, music and and apps on it and again that's more of a shaping environment but they definitely set the industry standard there um, you, you can also in you know you also need to influence customer preferences if you're in an innovative environment you need to talk to customers about why what you're doing is necessary and why they actually want it um, you know Steve Jobs often talked about you know, he doesn't care about, he didn't care about going and asking customers what they wanted, but, but by the time you built it, their preferences would change. It's kind of like he was skating to where the, the, the puck was going. Um, you know, Henry Ford once said, if, if I asked customers what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse. And that, that was true back then. So you've got to envision where the puck is going, but you've also got to sell customers on the idea that they need what you're selling. So that, that's an important f feature. You know, in a, in a classical environment, customer preferences and meeting customer demands is a lot more important. In a visionary, it's much more creating the customer demand and, and, and setting what their preferences should be, if that makes sense. Um, also, setting, setting the, the industry standard, going back to that would be, you know, what's a good example of that? Well, you know, for years, if you were make a, making a copy of a, a paper nowadays you scan it on your phone but if you were using a machine to make a copy of a piece of paper what would you say you say I'm making a Xerox even if you're using a Canon or a, a Minolta uh, uh, copier um, and that's because Xerox set the standard way back in the 70s when they first made made scanners uh, copy machines you know what do you say when you do a computer search no matter what you're doing you say you're doing a Google search and there are other search engines, but no matter what you say, even if you're using Yahoo or you know, uh, DuckDuckGo or whatever, you're gonna say, I'm doing a Google search. And that's because Google set the standard on, um, on, uh, on, on doing on search engines. So the innovative approach or the visionary approach rather, it's for when you've got an extremely predictable environment, that's why extremely predictable environments are so ripe for innovators to come in with a visionary approach and attack them and disrupt them is because they are very predictable. But it's gotta be also an environment where you can change it. And that's the mistake, not a mistake a lot of startups make because you know obviously there's risk that if you have a visionary approach, no one's gonna, no one's gonna take it. But if you do have a visionary approach that customers will take, you've gotta go in and be able to change the, uh, the ecosystem and set the new the new standard that and and draw draw customers into your disruptive company as a result so that's the visionary approach again your strategy needs a strategy very cool book